If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. It is impossible to be in a spacesuit in zero gravity and not have a giant smile on your face. At the back of your mind, there's always that, oh my goodness, I'm pointless, I'm flying, I'm doing the Superman. And despite the fun aspects of space travel, for Dr. Shauna Pandya, it's all about keeping everyone healthy and safe. Dr. Pandya is both an MD and a citizen scientist astronaut with Boulder, Colorado-based Project POSSUM. That is an acronym for Project Polar Suborbital Science in the Upper Mesosphere. (laughs) What a mouthful. And Project POSSUM is a 501c3 institute using astronautics to study the role of the mesosphere in climate change. Dr. Pandya serves as director of Project Possum Space Medicine Group, and her additional multiple professional affiliations include her position as director of medical research for the world's first large-scale space construction company and chief instructor of operational space medicine for Boulder-based International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. The following podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please consult a healthcare professional with any medical questions. Dr. Pandya, before we get to talking about space medicine and all the cool stuff you're doing, I would love to know how you first discovered your passion for space science and becoming an astronaut. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for that, Dot. So like so many kids, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. I just never really grew out of that dream. I grew up in the 90s when Dr. Roberta Bondar became Canada's first female into space, Canada's first female astronaut. And I was tremendously inspired by that. And so, you know, I just looked at her trajectory and I said, okay, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. So now all I need to do is go pursue a degree in neuroscience, medicine, and go be an astronaut. And that's what I'll do. And that really <laughs> that's all you need to do. Yeah, it seems so simple when you're a kid. So that actually <laughs> was what inspired me to pursue my degree in neuroscience and medicine. And then as I went on in my career, I learned that, you know, well, space is trying to kill you and you need to be able to mitigate the hazards of the spaceflight environment. And space medicine is a very real field for that reason, to help keep astronauts healthy in space. And so that, you know, that was the first time I really realized that you can make space medicine part of your career. What are some of the ways space is going to kill you and the ways that you are mitigating that as a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about the hazards of the spaceflight environment, we talk about the big five. And so the one that leaps to everyone's mind immediately is microgravity or colloquially known as zero gravity. And so you and I have the luxury of doing this interview in 1G, so Earth gravity. But when you're in space, you don't have that gravity weighing down on you. Your arm will just float up in front of your face because there's no gravity to pull it down. And so that offloads all of your organ systems, your fluids, your bones, your muscles. So your bones will lose density, reflecting an osteoporotic state like you would see in the elderly on Earth. Your muscles lose mass, your fluids shift upwards. This puts more pressure up in your brain and on your optic nerves through which your eyes see. So there's a lot of different ways in microgravity alone can affect the human body. And then there's what we call radiation. So the higher you go, the more radiation you're exposed to. And once you get outside of the protective confines of the Van Allen belts that filter out most high energy radiation particles, you're exposed to solar particle events, 
what we call solar flares and background galactic cosmic radiation. There's the distance from Earth. So the further you go, the harder it is to keep in direct real-time contact with Earth. So by the time you get to Mars, you can expect a 6 to 46-minute round-trip communication delay, which isn't ideal during an emergency. There's everything else, which we call hostile environments. So it can be anything from altered day-night cycles. So you would expect to experience 16 sunrise-sunset cycles while on the International Space Station. So that's one orbit around the Earth every 90 minutes. On the moon, that day-night cycle looks like 14 days of day, 14 nights of night. And that's the day-night cycle. On the moon, there's all this lunar dust to worry about. And then the final category is isolation and confinement, which I think everyone can relate to during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But this is just a whole new level. And so imagine hurtling through a tin can in space with you and your crew. So you really have to have those good crew dynamics. And you really don't want to be that guy or gal who ends up being voted off the spacecraft. You have mentioned, in fact, crew dynamics and team dynamics multiple times in your blog and how important it is to be part of a team as a leader. I'd be curious, though, what you experienced. You talked about zero gravity in being one of the first citizen scientist astronaut candidates who got to be with Project Possum experiencing zero gravity. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And so for those who don't know me, I wear a lot of different hats as a physician, aquanaut, scientist, astronaut, candidate program graduate with Project Possum, and so much more. And through Project Possum, we also go by the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences, IIAS. So I'll use the two terms interchangeably. So I've been with this program since 2015, and I was part of the first crew to test a commercial spacesuit in zero gravity. And the way you do that without going to space is through what we call parabolic flight. Some of your listeners may know this as the vomit comet. And so we only fly as high as a at 17 to 19,000 feet. For comparison, a transatlantic jetliner will fly at about 39,000 feet. But we're flying in a parabola, so up and down. So just, just imagine if you're at the top of a roller coaster in an amusement park, and when you reach the crest of that roller coaster, right before you start going down that roller coaster, you're weightless for a second. You feel your stomach lift up into your throat. And so in a parabolic flight, you're following that same trajectory. And by free falling down that curve of that parabola, you're actually generating a 20 to 30 second period of microgravity, which allows you to perform important scientific and protocol tests. And so we got to test the spacesuit in this environment. I've done it for six campaigns now, and I have to say it is impossible to be in a spacesuit in zero gravity and not have a giant smile on your face. You make it look like such a blast in video. What goes through your head the minute you feel that zero gravity, the minute that you're weightless? What do you think? Yeah, there's a whole range of emotions. I think, you know, at the back of your mind, there's always that, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm weightless. I'm flying. I'm, I'm doing the Superman, which is, you know, always an amazing feeling. And then at the forefront of your mind is that you're there to perform a job, that you, you want to get through the testing protocol. You want to do it in a safe and successful fashion with your crew. You don't want to let anyone down. You want to perform every single task that you've rehearsed on the ground in your dry runs, in your rehearsal. And then you also need to be able to troubleshoot in real time along the way as unknowns crop up. So it's it's very operational. It's very dynamic. It's also a lot of fun. What are some of the ways that you mitigate the health risks of zero gravity for astronauts and citizen science astronauts like you? And some of the ways you would mitigate some of the other issues you've mentioned, such as radiation and space dust? Yeah. And so when we talk about 
keeping humans healthy in space. When we look at the governmental space agency astronauts like NASA, like the Canadian Space Agency and European Space Agency astronauts, it all starts with prevention. Prevention is one of the strongest and most key tools that NASA flight surgeons and and regular and space agency flight surgeons have at their disposal. And so if you can prevent an event from happening, that is worth so much more than dealing with something on station, for example, in the midst of a medical emergency. And so, for example, I often say that the road towards becoming a governmental space agency astronaut is littered with the hopes and dreams of medically disqualified candidates. Folks have been disqualified for having iron deficiency anemia, previous herniated discs, for cardiac concerns. So there's a whole host of reasons that candidates may be disqualified. And it's not to be mean, it's not to dash anyone's dreams, but it's really to keep everyone as safe as possible, starting with selection. And then this prevention and these preventative health measures continue on all the way up until flight. So this includes pre-flight rehab and muscle building regimens, because as you may remember, we just talked about how microgravity causes our muscles and bones to lose mass and density. And then on station to to continue maintaining some muscle mass or mitigating that muscle mass loss and bone density loss, astronauts will perform an hour and a half to two hours of aerobic exercise and resistive exercise on station six days of the week to help load those muscles and bones and to help mitigate those losses. You asked a fascinating question at the beginning of your World Festival presentation, which is, what would you pack for Mars? I'm going to turn that around on you. When you become an astronaut and go to the moon with the Artemis mission, possibly, or perhaps in the future to Mars, what are you going to pack for the moon for any kind of health issues that might happen? And what would you pack for Mars? Yeah, that's a great question, Dot. Thank you so much for that. So when we talk about what to pack, we need to know what we're packing for. And then what our constraints are. So we just talked about the environment and how it can kill us. And so we know what hazards to be prepared for. But we also need to talk about the constraints because you can't bring it all with you. Space is hard, space is risky, and space is expensive. Every kilogram that we send up to space costs thousands of dollars to transport. So we're limited by the mass we can bring, the volume. We have limited power draw that we can draw from the spacecraft that we're using. It has to have a long shelf life, be radiation resistant and easy to use. So that's kind of the constraints within what we're bringing in terms of our medical kit. And then the final piece of that puzzle is, well, what's the most likely things we need to be prepared for and how much of that do we need? And so we look at the history and the data from previous human spaceflight missions and we say, okay, well, here is the top most 100 likely things to have happened and that have happened. Everything from headaches and sinus congestion that we expect from all those fluids shifting upwards to mission-threatening and life-threatening things like a cardiac arrest or a massive hemorrhage. And then the last part of that is, well, how much of these things do we need? You know, And that's going to depend on how long is your mission, how many people on your mission, how likely is this event to happen? And if it happens, How much of a threat does it pose to the crew, loss of crew, or how much of a threat does it pose to the mission, so loss of mission? And actually, NASA has computer modeling tools to help extrapolate those quantities. So there's the integrated medical model, which is a computer modeling tool that looks at data from previous space flights. And then you input your crew size, your mission duration, your acceptable risks 
to loss of life, loss of crew, and then that generates outputs as to what quantities of your medical kit you would need based on current quantities in the International Space Station medical kit. And then the final, final part of that is anyone who's listening will say, well, what happens if you have an infection and a bladder infection and a tooth infection? Those are all things that could potentially use up the same antibiotic supply. So then you're talking about, well, how do we accommodate for the fact that multiple medical events can happen over different time points in a single mission? And so to help accommodate and think more dynamically, there's another computer modeling tool called the Medical Extensible Dynamic Probability Risk Assessment Tool, which is a mouthful to say, which is why NASA calls it the MedPrat for short. And then this is a computer modeling tool based off Bayesian modeling and neural networks that allows for different events to happen at different time frames in the mission and generate different possible outcomes based on when and how many of those events occurred. It's a little bit more dynamic than the integrated medical model. So there's a lot to space. It is hard. It is trying to kill us. So it only makes sense to be as prepared as possible, starting with selection, starting with prevention, and then using being aware of our constraints and using as many computer modeling tools at our disposal to help prepare for that environment. Heaven forbid, but what if you do have an emergency? You've just told me how long it takes to get the communications back from Mars. What in the world do you do? Yeah, that's a really insightful question because the game changes when you go as far as Mars. And the reason I say that is because when you're on the International Space Station, you're still relatively close to home. Um, There are places on Earth that it would take you longer to get to medical, definitive medical care than it would from the International Space Station. So, for example, from the time you hit the evacuation button to the time you got down to definitive medical care in Kazakhstan upon landing, it would be on the order of hours. Aquarius Reef Base is an underwater research facility in the Florida Keys where NASA runs its NEMO or NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations missions. And when you're at that depth, at 50 feet, for more than 24 hours, you're in saturation. All those bubbles, those nitrogen bubbles in your bloodstream dissolve, and you have to let them dissolve back out at a set rate because if they come up too fast, there's too many bubbles that can lodge in bad places like your brain or your heart, causing seizures, coma, or even death. So when you're at the Aquarius Reef phase, to safely decompress, it's on the order of 15 hours and 47 minutes safely decompress. So you can actually get to definitive medical care from the International Space Station more quickly from space than you could from certain points on Earth. So then coming back to your, well, how does this affect Mars? So then going a little bit further out to the moon, it's about a 2.4 second communication delay round trip from the moon. So it's a little bit inconvenient and annoying to hold a conversation, but not impossible if you need immediate real-time medical communication. Now, by the time you go on to a six to nine month journey to Mars, and that's the reason there's a range is it depends on the alignment of Earth and Mars. That communication delay, as we've discussed, becomes six to 46 minutes round trip. So now imagine that you have a cardiac arrest and it's the doctor that's down. So now you have no idea what to do because there's no one medical left on the crew. You don't have time to wait for help from Earth. So then the question is, how do we mitigate that risk? And for that, we look to technologies that can help astronauts survive and thrive independently in situ, whether that's 
machine learning and artificial intelligence to help with medical decision making, whether that's artificial reality, virtual reality for medical training, skills maintenance, real-time guidance, whether that's in-situ 3D printing to print medical components and tools. There's so much out there that we need to be looking at if we really are serious about going to Mars, surviving, and actually doing meaningful work on the surface of the Red Planet. Where do people find out more about training in virtual reality? That sounds so cool for something like medicine on Mars. Yeah, that's a great question. I feel qualified to answer that because one of my other hats is as the VP of Immersive Medicine with Luxonic Technologies. Um, And so we're a Canadian company. We focus on immersive or virtual reality, augmented reality, 360 video for medical training, whether you're talking about space or Earth. We have a suite that's funded by the Canadian Space Agency for exactly that purpose to help astronauts maintain their skills and practice their skills for medical procedures in virtual reality while on a long duration mission. And if you want to know more about our work, you can go to luxonic.ca or you can head to YouTube and see some of our videos of what we've done. I've been lucky enough to test out some of our radiology VR suites, both underwater on an underwater mission, also in zero gravity. So there's proof that there is value in bringing emerging technologies, immersive technologies to these austere environments to help with medical care. We've been talking all about space medicine, but what have you discovered as a space medicine researcher that the average person that probably is not going to be flying into zero gravity can apply to be healthier here on Earth? Oh, sure. There's so many. That's a really good question. I think resilience is one of them. And so when we talk about resilience, we talk about mental grit, fortitude, toughness, and I think that's particularly relevant, you know, during the pandemic when so many of us have lost our traditional schedules, structures, physical spaces. And so in austere environments and isolated and confined environments like space, like Antarctic deployments, like submarines, there's actually research on this that shows that people can build their resilience. And it comes down to five key components, including positive self-talk, telling yourself that you've got this, breaking things down. So taking a monumental task and asking yourself what next step. Impulse control, so resisting the urge to give up. Mental rehearsal, talking about the best and the worst case scenarios and how you're going to react in each of those. And then positive social supports, drawing on your social networks to help you get through this. And I think it's important to acknowledge that you know, this is something that you can build, that I can build. It's not that you're more resilient than I am and we're just born that way. And it's critical to work on applying these skills and these principles every single day to help ourselves get through what is a very difficult global situation. Excellent life lesson for indeed navigating challenging times that we have never seen before. Our listeners and I would love to know where you are currently with your journey as a citizen scientist astronaut. What's next for you? Yeah, thank you for that. So I've been with AAAS, the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences, as a scientist, astronaut candidate program graduate since 2015. We have been lucky enough to test all manner of spacesuits in zero gravity, in water landing testing, post-landing testing scenarios with the Canadian Space Agency. I direct their space medicine group, and we have been on hold for our operations because of COVID, but we've been going strong with our research and virtual programs. I'm helping, I'm going strong with Luxonic and helping develop our medical VR platforms for both Earth and space. 
So the next step is keeping the forward momentum going, keeping on that trajectory, and hopefully that trajectory will also include space soon. We wish you the very best, Dr. Pandya. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Dot. Really appreciate your questions. You and I have been listening to Dr. Shauna Pandya, physician, citizen scientist, astronaut, and vice president of immersive medicine at Saskatchewan-based software firm Luxonic Technologies. Find out more about that virtual reality medical training for space, as well as their on-Earth applications at Luxonic's website, luxonic.ca. And be sure you check out Dr. Pandya's personal website, shaunapandya.com, spelling her name S-H-A-W-N-A, last name is Pandya, P-A-N-D-Y-A, shaunapandya.com. You can access her blog and the videos of her talks, including two of her TEDx talks. The preceding podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any medical questions. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.